Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Brain Drain. Once again, I'm your host, Connor McCann, and thank you for listening today. Whatever day it is that you are listening, thank you. I appreciate it. appreciate you checking in with me and checking out this new podcast. So as some of you may know, this is the second podcast I've done, and I'm still in the process of getting things figured out, still in the process of fucking up, correcting the fuck-ups, and trying to bring the best product to you guys that I can. And I can say that this week I'll be happy to be uploading to YouTube. Last week I had some complications and it just didn't get done. I had a bunch of other shit going on. My mom was having surgery. And I'm not going to give you guys a bunch of excuses, but the shit just didn't happen. But it's okay. We're moving on this week. I got something brand new. Hopefully something very interesting and exciting for you guys to listen to. So without further ado, let's get to it. So for as long as serial killers have been studied and even acknowledged as a concept, which admittedly isn't very long, there's long been that assumption that once killers start killing, they never stop. So for example, this past week I've been checking out the show The Serpent on Netflix, and this is not a plug, but I like the show a lot. I really like Taha Rahim's performance as Charles Sobraj, the He, you know, the titular character, the serpent. But on the show, there's a character named Herman Knippenberg, who's based on a real person. He was a Dutch diplomat that was really the first person to investigate this series of killings that Charles Sobraj carried out in Thailand. And he made the comment that if we don't catch this guy, he's just going to keep killing, killing, killing. So one can say that such isn't even an assumption. It's just the truth. But is that truly the case? Are murders like Pringles? Like once you pop, you just can't stop? I have a feeling about this, and this is my feeling. Nah. And I have some examples to back up my theory. This week on Brain Drain, I will be discussing Gary Ridgway, Dennis Rader, and Joseph D'Angelo, better known as the Green River, BTK, and Golden State Killers. Close to, if not more than 100 men and women were killed by these three, and all three remained free for decades. Yet, all three stopped killing at some point in their lives. We discuss these men, what their lives were like before their sprees, what was similar, what was different, their modus operandi, and why they decided to hang it up. Now, before we get into, you know, these three and their adult lives, I think it's incredibly important to understand their childhoods. I think any discussion of serial killers or serial rapists or these kind of serialized for (laughs) you repetitive ass motherfuckers who do this kind of shit, it's very important to understand, you know, what their early lives were like. Because just on the surface, without that understanding, maybe even with this understanding, their crimes are still not going to make a lot of sense to us. But the important part is that it makes a lot of sense to them. What they do and why they do, it makes perfect sense. So, there might be some clues within their childhood. And before we get into the particularities of these three's childhoods, I want to introduce a concept that perhaps a lot of you who follow true crime and serial killers might be familiar with. And it's the debate about nature versus nurture. Simply put, for the short amount of time that people have been studying serial killers, Mind you, the modern serial killer in a lot of people's minds 
was Jack the Ripper. He was the first modern serial killer of modern times, post-industrial revolution. That's in, what, the 1880s, 1890s, late 1800s, there in London. That marks the beginning point. But you have to understand, the concept of serial killer, or even the, the phrase serial killer, it doesn't exist until the FBI started dedicating resources and, you know, office, or whatever you call federal federal agents, they started dedicating these people to studying serial killers and their behavior. That's only in the late 70s through the 80s. If you've seen the show Mindhunter, that is about the first full-time profiler, John Douglas. And that's where a lot of our understanding comes from. Comes from guys like John Douglas, comes from his partner Robert Ressler, and the people that dedicated their lives to understanding these people. So these people have debated this concept of nature versus nurture, meaning nature. This is just who you are. You're born as a killer. You're born incredibly antisocial. You're programmed on an organic level to be a shit human being, to manipulate people, to exploit people, and to hurt people. And there's nothing that can be done to stop that. However, on the flip side, there's the nurture debate. And the nurture debate states that Serial killers aren't born, they're formed. The things that happen to them, particularly in their early developmental phases, in childhood and adolescence, that's what makes them who they are. That's what makes them these people that are sexually sadistic, that have these insane fantasies that perhaps um, maybe like to do the do with people that are no longer living. These things come from their development. As for me, I'm not an expert on anything, so who really gives a fuck (laughs) what I think, but at the same time, you're listening to this podcast, so I guess you give a fuck. So thank you for giving a fuck, and for giving a fuck, here's my opinion. I think it's a combination of both. I think that definitely certain things in a child, young person's development can influence them to go this way, but on the flip side, there's tons of people myself included, who endured poverty, that endured abuse, that had a parent that was a substance abuser, that endured physical abuse. I've endured these things. I don't go out and chop people's heads off. You know, they're they're diagnosed psychopaths. They have antisocial personality disorder. That is the formal diagnosis of being a psycho. They have this and they're not violent people. So you, in my opinion, just my opinion, like I said, that's based off just me fucking sitting around thinking about shit and analyzing, I think that you still have to have some of that in you because there's people that have that in them that endured none of the things that typically are associated with early development of a serial killer. They didn't have somebody, you know, molesting them. They didn't have somebody, you know, drinking away the family's money. They weren't living in the hood. Someone wasn't beating the crap out of them every day and they still turned into that. And, you know, if you have that in you and you experience some of these things that we're going to come to discuss, perhaps it's possible you might end up going down that route. So with that said, I can say as far as these three, Green River, BTK, and the Golden State Killer, mind you also, the Golden State Killer is known by a few different names. He committed three different distinct crime sprees that we'll, you know, we'll touch on in a little while. 
but he was known by different names. He was known as the East Area Rapist. He was known as the Visalia Ransacker. He was known as the original Night Stalker. And then the late Michelle McNamara, rest in peace, she gave him the name, the Golden State Killer, that maybe he might be better known under today. But aside from the nomenclature and the names, these three men experienced some similarities growing up. The most notable similarity between the three of them is that they all experienced either a traumatic event, suffered abuse, or neglect. So first off, we're going to start most of this analysis with Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. And we'll do that because prior to the apprehension and series of confessions given by a man named Samuel Little, who was proven to have killed at least 91 women during his spree, Green River, the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway, Gary Ridgway was the most prolific serial killer in American history, or at least the one that had the most proven kills, because there's some guys, Henry Lee Lucas is probably most notable, that claimed to have killed hundreds of people, and while he was a killer, and once again, there's nothing to be uh, glorified with that, there's nothing to be proud of, you kill people, great, you're doing one of the worst fucking things a person can do on earth. So, we're here to try to understand and analyze and examine but what we're not here to do similar to the episode before is um prop any of this bullshit up as anything that should be celebrated or glorified in any way so with that out of the way we'll talk about childhood ridgeway his father was indifferent in a lot of ways but he complained about prostitutes a lot and we'll see how that influences gary's life later but his mother was very domineering, very abusive, particularly sexually abusive. Not in the sense that she forced him to do things or, you know, there was any kind of relationship on that level. But I'll tell you what he had to endure. So he was a bedwetter, which is very common amongst people that go on to become serial killers. There's a thing called the dark triad. Bedwetting is one of them. And he shares this with a lot of other people. However, his particular experience is that his mother insisted on cleaning his junk each time he pissed himself, up until he was a teenager. If you don't think that constitutes sexual abuse, then if you do the same to your child, you might be setting him up to be a fucking serial killer. And you should really get examined. I will also note that Having a domineering mother is very common for serial killers, particularly the combination of drunk or drug-abusing father and overly domineering mother, overly protective, you know, cleaning you, doing all this extra shit that is very unnecessary, helicopter parenting to the extreme. This combination has probably produced the majority of serial killers that we're aware of. Now, BTK... And the Golden State Killer had less, quote-unquote, traditional serial killer backgrounds. And they, they kind of share more similarities with each other than they do with Green River. BTK's parents were functioning members of society. Both worked. They didn't use drugs. They weren't using alcohol. They weren't chasing after strippers and hookers, serial philanderers. He didn't have to see his dad beating the shit out of his mom at home. There was none of this but they were very involved and very dedicated to their careers. 
as such, a young Dennis Rader, a young BTK, he spent a lot of time by himself. He spent a lot of time feeling very lonely and disconnected and withdrawn from the world, from his peers, from other kids, from his parents particularly. He didn't feel that love. He didn't feel that connection. He didn't feel anything regarding the, you know, anything that's a normal thing for a child or a thing that a child needs, like attention. You can go overboard, but a kid needs at least some basic interaction from his parents, and BTK didn't get a lot of that. So what he did was he spent a lot of time just by himself, deeper, 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 digging deeper, deeper, deeper into his brain and creating this fantasy world where he could subject women, particularly like his mother, to binding, domination, and control. The Golden State Killer himself grew up in a military family. So when he was young, I believe he was 9 or 10 years old, his family was stationed in Germany. And he saw his sister be sexually assaulted by two soldiers. Two adult soldiers assaulted his you know, young sister. And while he seemed to have a more stable life during this time, like he went to college, he became a police officer, he, he was married, he had more of the traditional, I guess you can say, accoutrements or accomplishments or accessories that a normal life in America includes, which is very, you could say, different, dissimilar from the majority of people who go this path of killing strangers for sexual delight. So it's also noteworthy that all three served in the military, with Green River and the Golden State Killer seeing combat during the Vietnam War. Lots of serial killers actually have served in the military, but I wouldn't necessarily say this is a reflection of the military per se. Particularly during the time that we're talking about, all of these guys started their crime sprees in either the late 70s or early 80s. So prior to that, the U.S., you know, had instituted a draft, a very unpopular draft, during the Vietnam War and the times before, Korea, World War II, so on and so forth. We had compulsory military service. So these three guys may have enlisted to avoid being, you know, stuck on a shit detail like being an infantryman somewhere <laughs> in the southern part of Vietnam or crossing the fucking border over into Cambodia or bombing the shit out of Laos or any of the goofy shit that we were doing at the time, they could have signed up for something either to go, you know, be a part of, or they signed up because they figured they might get drafted anyway. So fucking, I might as well choose my service and do something like BTK did joining the, the Air Force versus being a grunt. I'll also add that a lot of people join the military. The military has a lot of people and People join in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, every year. Some branch, whether it's Active Reserve or National Guard or something like that. People join. And you can't necessarily say that joining the military turns you into a killer, despite the fact that there have been a lot of killers to serve in the military. So now that we have something of an idea of their childhood, obviously not an extensive idea, but something about what they had to endure or what their mindset was, or what they witnessed, now we can go on and talk about their motivations for their crimes. As alluded to before, the Green River Killer Gary Ridgway, he had both a fascination 
and a hatred of, you know, fascination with and a hatred of prostitutes, in addition to a really terrible relationship, abusive relationship with his mother. He wanted the prostitutes in his area to just be gone. He wanted prostitutes to vanish, disappear. They were harlots. They were vectors of sin. But at the same time, man, he couldn't stop messing with them. He loved and hated hookers. Hookers, like any other kind of vice, they have, and I'm not going to talk about the, the men, women, and otherwise who engage in sex work like there's some kind of uh, vague apparition. These are human beings. I've known people engaged in this work. I got nothing against anybody providing sexual services. I hope you're doing so willingly, and I hope you get paid, and I don't. I hope you don't have some pimp motherfucker taking your money at the end of the night and beating the shit out of you when, when you don't. But, you know, he had, he had a fascination, fixation, super attraction and hatred of prostitutes. And this seemed to be the primary motivation. You know, when he was caught later, he said he just got tired of paying for him. But I don't think it was that simple. For those who are unaware, BTK stands for Bind, Torture, and Kill. I think that sufficiently sums up Dennis Rader's motivation. He wanted to control people, up to and including their death. He wanted to have the power to make a person do anything he wanted, bind them into some position he wanted, strangle him and let him go, watch him die and come back to life multiple times. He wanted to have the final say over your very existence, and this need to control drove him to commit his crimes. As for Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, he hasn't gone on the record and spoken on his motivations. There isn't a whole lot out there that comes from his mouth, if really much at all, other than um, some of the... We'll get into that later. Let me leave you on a cliffhanger there. We'll get to that later. But he hasn't come out. He hasn't given an interview. You know, Dennis Rader has talked extensively. He gave a very extensive confession in court. Green River has, you know, spoken about these things, particularly during his confession. He had a very lengthy confession, you know, due to the amount of people he killed. So he, he spoke about these things, but Joseph D'Angelo so far hasn't. He was only fairly recently apprehended, I believe in 2018. And he was only recently, as of last year, sentenced to multiple life terms. He might get bored at some point. He might, you know, get tired of the routine of sitting in a cell. He's probably at the PHU at Corcoran or some other super restrictive uh, housing facility because a person like him, particularly in a prison system, you know, like California's where people that harm women and commit sexual crimes get killed, he can't have anybody coming near him. He might get tired of that and need to talk to another human or at least relive his crimes and speak on him. But until then... We're just going to have to go on what the crimes themselves showed. And there was one there was one particular assault that he committed while functioning under the name or the media given name of the East Area Rapist, where he started crying and saying the name of his ex. He also, what's a, what's a good way to say this? Because my mom's probably going to listen to this shit, but he had some... Uh, feelings of inadequacy. We'll leave it at that. Um, and you guys can use your imagination. He also had sadistic desires. 
you don't break into people's houses and you don't tie people up and put people through the mind games that he did just just to do it. Like, you enjoy doing these things. That's why you do them. And I would say sadistic sexual pleasure would be his primary motivation. Due to the nature of the crimes, it's a lot easier for us to discuss the modus operandi. Because a killer can say one thing, a killer can say many things, and they can all be lies. You can almost expect someone that loves manipulating and controlling people to talk a bunch of bullshit. It's just the nature of the beast. However, how they carried out their crimes tells us more than perhaps they would even tell themselves. So the Green River Killer, he particularly killed prostitutes and runaways, teenage runaways, and very vulnerable women in the Seattle-Tacoma area. He would pick them up. If they were prostitutes, he would, you know, solicit them for sex. He would offer to pay whatever they were asking. They would go somewhere. They would do their thing. And then he'd kill them. That was his, that was his MO. He would kill them. He would dump bodies primarily next to rivers, which is how he got his name, dumping a body next to the Green River and dumping multiple bodies in that area. His first series... I believe what was known, the body count that was known was in the 40s. Obviously, he had more and more and more. He, sa he says himself that he can't remember how many people he killed because it was so many. And he followed the same track. He did happen to take a couple of victims to Oregon to dump them or he would dump bodies in other counties. He knew that he can cause some confusion and particularly confusion in communication. Those days... You know, the different police agencies almost looked at each other as rivals, and there wasn't any kind of communication. There was no email for them to use. It was a lot of personal relationships and phone calls, and he preyed on this kind of precarious system. And he was known to be pretty comfortable carrying out these types of crimes. Mind you, he killed at least 71 women. At least. Could be more. Probably is more. But he was very comfortable doing these things. He was so comfortable that he actually brought his son along on a murder. He picked up a prostitute, left his son in a place where his son couldn't see the deed being done. I believe it was at home. Killed the woman and dumped her. And proceeded to just hang out with his son like it was no big thing. As for BTK and the Golden State Killer, their crimes actually share some similarities. Now, not, not in the geographical sense, BTK, Dennis Raiders from Wichita, Kansas, and uh, Eron's Golden State Killer, Vasilya Ransacker, committed his crimes in, you know, very different parts of California. So, I'm a native Californian. I'm originally from San Francisco. I lived briefly for about a year in an area that was affected by these killings. Uh, in in the, the small town of Walnut Creek, it's a suburb. It's about an hour away by train from San Francisco. If you take the BART, it's going to take a while. It's going to be packed as fuck. But you're not going to have to wait too long to get to where you're going if you're trying to go to the city. So, you know, he started his crime spree, Golden State Killer, started his crime spree as the Visalia Ransacker, which only, you know, as this Ransacker, he would go and just fuck people's houses up. He would tear your shit down. He would break your furniture, smash things. He would steal things that were of no real value, but were just little personal mementos. He would do that in your house. You'd come home, your house is fucking trashed. And he continued to do this as the East Area Rapist 
Obviously, he added sexual assault to the equation in addition to fucking people's houses up. He did this primarily in the Sacramento area, although he committed crimes in Davis, he committed crimes in Stockton, Walnut Creek, Danville, and ultimately he brought himself down to Southern California, where as the original Night Stalker, in addition to fucking people's houses up, in addition to sexually assaulting women and terrifying the shit out of men because he would tie them up and he would stack plates on their back and play these little mind games and say, if I hear any kind of shit move, I'm going to come and I'm going to fucking kill you. And you believe it. This is a man that's already broken into your house, you know, completely unseen, unheard, and is waking you up in the middle of the night with a fucking pistol or a knife pointed in your face telling you to do these things. He committed his, like I said, he committed his last series of crimes, which also included murder, murdering the women, murdering men, whoever's in the house in Southern California. BTK, as said, is from Wichita, Kansas. They both broke into houses. That was where they committed their crimes, which isn't particularly common for serial killers. A lot of serial killers have confidence problems that should not be surprising to anybody. These people feel not adjusted to society. Nothing makes sense. Everything pisses them off. Nobody appreciates how great they are. And they want to do something about it. <laughs> you know, And a lot of them don't have the forethought, foresight, understanding, planning ability, uh, the ability to maybe talk to somebody and trick them into going along with your plan, or even just have a conversation and approach somebody, period. Most of these people are lacking these skills, these basic skills that we need as people in day-to-day -day life to just get a job, continue working at a job, go to the fucking grocery store, normal shit these guys can't do. But BTK and the Golden State Killer were able to scale their crimes up a notch. BTK would stalk and really obsess over his victims. His first set of victims were the Otero family. Of a family of, I believe, only five or six people, you know, two parents and a few kids, one kid wasn't home, he killed everybody else in the family. That was his debut on the stage. He cut the wires uh, to the phone. He broke in. He waited for him. He was able to subdue everybody. Ultimately, being the total fucking piece of shit that he is, he, you know, his main target and his main obsession at that time was a nine-year-old girl. He wanted to kill this girl. He wanted to see her suffer. He enjoyed himself. You can look up how he enjoyed himself. I'm not trying to talk about all that on my podcast, but this is who he was. He would pick somebody, and a lot of times the women that he picked, which, you know, varied in age range. Obviously, you know, young Miss Otera, you know, rest in peace, she was a nine-year-old girl. He had other victims that were 55, 60 years old. It ran the gamut, but once he found somebody that he wanted to do his thing to, he stuck with them. The Golden State Killer showed a similar level of obsession. He started out as a burglar, and he would target certain types of houses. If I remember correctly, you know, these houses were usually on the, the bottom floor of subdivisions and development, which in Northern California, there's a lot. There's a lot of empty spaces around these, you know, towns that spring up. So in a city like San Francisco, there's no space to build anything. But if you go south, there's subdivisions, subdivisions. Used to be an empty hillside there. Fuck it, throw up some houses. You know, people go live there because they want to be close to the city. He targeted these places. And he targeted places particularly that had an open field next to him. So he would spot his, his place. If it fit the parameters, he'd go inside, he'd take a look. He'd look at pictures. 
perhaps he might have seen this person before, so he's going back for follow-up. He would have his victim, his route, his escape route, everything planned out, and then he would go and do the break-in. It's noteworthy that during this time, BTK worked for the alarm company ADT, installing burglar alarms during his spree. So people were freaked out, as we'll get into in a little while. People were freaked out and started, you know, obtaining these kinds of services. And he would go and install your alarm. The guy that you're installing the alarm for, <laughs> you know, is the same person installing the alarm. And also noteworthy is that the Golden State Killer was a police officer who worked on the burglary unit in the town of Exeter. So Exeter, I believe, is east of Visalia. Visalia is in the valley, the Central Valley, kind of an agricultural, larger agricultural community. I don't know a lot about it. I know people gangbang down there. I know people do meth and people fucking farm, and it doesn't seem like much else. And if, if I'm wrong about that, my apologies, but that's always been uh, my perception of that area. Also of note is that Gary Ridgway was arrested for soliciting post, you know, prostitution in 1982 during the start of these crimes. He was considered a suspect in 1983 while the crimes were going on. But in 1984, he passed polygraph test, and he wasn't apprehended until 2001. As I alluded to just now, when I was discussing Mr. Dennis Rader's occupation installing fucking burglar alarms, there were a lot of societal effects of these crime sprees. The most you know, notable, noteworthy, prominent is they created a lot of fear, which wasn't necessarily the first intent when these men went and got their victims. For a couple of them, if not all of them, it was all for the purpose of sexual gratification. Scaring the fuck out of society, scaring the fuck out of the normal people, the victims, the sheep, whatever you want to call them, is another added bonus. And this fear does a lot of stuff to people. When there's somebody active in your area that's killing people, particularly killing people like you, it can do a lot of things to you. You find a lot of ways to cope with this kind of stress. Some of them could be beneficial. Maybe you hit the gym more. Maybe it's created closer links between you and your friends because now you guys travel together. You guys don't want to travel solo. You don't want to expose yourself. Everybody starts carpooling, less fucking cars on the road. That's positive. But you also hear about a lot of goofy shit. Uh, people start buying guns, which I wouldn't say is goofy. Some some might. I wouldn't. I think it's a, a rational response to an irrational situation to say I'm exposed and I, I need to end this threat this, the, the moment I encounter it, if this dude comes in the house, I want to blast him. I don't want him to kill me. I don't look at that as irrational. But irrational behaviors can be tied to coping with stress. And you could do things that are very harmful while you're doing this. Maybe you start drinking more. Maybe while you're drinking, you got that hen dog. You're on your like fourth or fifth double shot. You can't sleep. You're just awake, paranoid. And you're strapped. And you're, you're just ready. You wish a motherfucker would. And you're going to blast. And when the motherfucker who would pops up, it's your wife, it's your mom, it's your kid, it's a friend, it's somebody to come check on you, and you blast them. You know, we've endured in this country, what, in the last year and a half or so, a persistent crisis. Namely, the whole world is, you know, <laughs> the, whole, the whole world's experienced coronavirus. But we had the election as well. 
We had the post-election fallout, the violence. And during this whole time, what did we hear? We heard about a lot of people acting fucking goofy, doing stupid shit. You can say it's just Florida. Florida has a lot of it. There's the Florida, the Southwest, that would be Arizona. There's some of that as well. You know, people are just fucking snapping. And in a, you can say in a situation or a era of expanding and growing tension and fear, you're going to have to deal with people handling it bad and doing dumb shit. And that's not necessarily even just something that the people as a whole, the potential victims have to deal with. That's something that the people trying to catch the victims have to deal with too. They're going to be under a lot of pressure. They're going to be under a lot of stress. If you know some cops, you know a lot of them don't handle it the best. Drinking, divorce, drug use, domestic violence, all of these things become part and parcel for cops. I mean, it's not something that's mandated. There's nothing saying as soon as you become a cop, you're going to start fucking drinking too much. You're going to start fucking around on your wife. You're going to have a baby out of wedlock. You're going to fucking punch her. You're going to do all this stuff. No, but it could happen. And we talked very briefly about John Douglas earlier. John Douglas was in the Seattle Tacoma area searching and trying to apprehend the Green River Killer like he did the Atlanta Child Killer, Wayne Williams. He was on hand for that. And the process of trying to apprehend this man almost killed him. And he wasn't successful. The best first profiler ever. The first full-time profiler for the FBI was unable to capture this man. And it almost fucking killed him in the process. But most of all, the people who are going to feel the most fear, the most pressure, the most indecisiveness, the most depression, the most doom about the future, are the people who feel targeted. And the people who are targeted by the crime spree. In the case of the Green River Killer, this would be female sex workers and runaways in the Seattle-Tacoma area in the 1980s. As a matter of fact, why don't you imagine yourself in that situation? So check it out. You're a prostitute on the SeaTac Strip. You don't have any access to internet. There's no cell phones. And there's really not that many ways for someone like yourself who's been a prostitute since you were a teenager, to find, compare, and analyze anything about what's going on. And not just about what's going on right now, but in the whole world. You're pretty much in the dark. But what you do know is that there's somebody or some people killing a lot of prostitutes in the area, and the cops, they can't find them. Even though you wish you could stay home and not enter the cars of strange men, you still have to. You know that every time you do so could result in your death, not just from the Green River Killer, but from any other weirdo asshole who wants to kill a hooker tonight. If you come back to your man at the end of the night and you bring him less than he expects, he could kill you as well. So you're out this night. You're hustling. You're doing your thing. You're on the strip. You're with a bunch of other women just like you. And a black Ford F-150 pulls up. You see a white man the mustache in the driver's seat. You've actually seen him before. You've actually turned this trick before. So you get in, and within an hour, you're strangled and dumped in a forested area. The final victim, Gary Ridgway. It seems like these three men really enjoyed what they did. This was at the center, not only of who they were on a personal level, not on a public level, because 
Although we live in the era of self-snitching and doing really stupid shit either on camera or doing some dirt and then talking about it on Instagram afterwards, it's not really the greatest idea for someone that kills people pretty frequently to talk to people about it. But they knew who they were. And you have to wonder, why did they stop? Why? Well, they have some fairly simple motives as to why. The Green River Killer, in particular, Gary Ridgway, the man that proves that serial killers can stop, the man that prior to the apprehension of Samuel Little was the most prolific serial killer in American history, he stopped. And he stopped because he found love. That's right. He found a, you know, he found a ride or die. He found a woman that was down for him, that wanted to build a life with him, that loved him unconditionally. And after this marriage, his last marriage, he only killed three more people, which you can say, yeah, he still killed, but he slowed down considerably. Even like, you know, this was a super religious guy, mind you. This was a guy that he would come and knock on your door, you know, on a Sunday morning and ask, what's up, homie? You come to church? You know, what's that Christ like? You know, he's trying to read the Bible to you. He's doing all these pronouncements. He's like that. He is a super duper religious guy, evangelical Christian, I believe, that still went out and met hookers and killed them. So the religion didn't stop him. But marrying his last wife did. He didn't cheat on her. He cheated on his previous wives, like his first wife that he had. He went to Nam. Once again, being Gary Ridgway, he was fucking around with hookers and he caught the, he caught the clap. And, uh, you know, his wife, you know, <laughs> was running around on him too. His second wife, it was the same type of situation. His third wife, the one that was really down for him and really loved him. Nah, it wasn't like that. This dude, you know, he would go and work. Every time he got paid, he would turn over his check to her. He let her run the household. He let her run the finances. He was an open book. He was always with her. He just wanted to chill with her and spend time and enjoy life. And it's like, wow, how about if his first wife, you know, was that one? And I'm not blaming his wife. I'm blaming him for being a piece of shit, serial killer, necrophile, abuser of women, I'm not going to put that on the wife. That ain't her fault. But it does wonder, or one does wonder, I wonder, what would have happened if his last wife was his first one? And for those of you who have not fallen in love with somebody, I currently love someone very much. I've been with my girlfriend, Karen, two years, and I love her more each time I see her. It's had a very positive effect on my life. I would be in a very different place. I might even be in a very different place geographically if it wasn't for her so I can attest to this this is ultimately what brought his crime spree to a halt and to a stop completely for Dennis Rader it ended up being something different he had a need for control over people obviously even when he wasn't actively killing when he couldn't find a victim he couldn't find someone he fancied or someone that he uh, found that inspiration in which is a fucking terrible way of looking at serial murder but we're, we're looking at things objectively. We're looking at the fact that as an artist, I understand what it means to see something and be inspired. Perhaps it was the same kind of uh, response in his mind. But he stopped needing this after a while. And that's because he ended up finding work as a fucking dog catcher and a compliance officer. So for those that are unaware, 
that's a guy that lives in a small town or he lives in like a condo development. I used to work in, you know, condo management. So I'm very familiar with the people who take this role of telling people to cut their lawn or get that shit off your balcony or do this or do that or paint your house. There's people that do this shit when you work in housing and they don't get paid for it. This ain't their job. This is just who they are. They're just a nosy ass person and they're in everybody's business and they have suggestions about what everybody else needs to do. This motherfucker, Dennis Rader, ends up actually getting a job that allows him to do this. So he finds a very dickish outlet for his need to have control over people. And this was sufficient enough to stop his crime spree. And he only ends up not resuming the crime spree, but resuming the kind of adjacent behavior, namely fucking with the police. He would do that a lot. He would send letters out to let you know. I mean, he he had fantasies about a nine-year-old girl. You really don't need to know how much more of an asshole Dennis Rader is or a piece of shit or a crazy person or monster or whatever. But on top of everything else, he even gave himself his own nickname. If you know anybody that ever uh, tells you to call them something like, Hey, what's up? Call me Ace. Call me Quick. Call me Flash. You know, they're called Boo Boo or they're called Dumb Fuck or whatever. Shit stained. And now they want something cool. That was Dennis Rader when he was doing his thing, when he was putting his fucking letters out and he was scaring people and fucking with the cops. That's what he did. He stopped, but he started again when his marriage looked like it was going to falter and his wife was going to leave him. He was losing his control over his wife. He felt like perhaps he was losing control over himself. And he started deviating back into old behavior. And ultimately, he got himself arrested in a really fucking stupid way. This is a guy that was looked at as a criminal mastermind, genius, whatever you want to call him. During this time when he reactivates himself and starts sending letters to the police, he sent a, or he left a letter behind, I believe, in a, uh, in a library, in a book. And he asked the cops, hey, what's up? I got some old shit for you guys. If I leave it on a floppy disk, are you going to be able to, like, trace it? The cops said, nah, homie, don't even trip. We're, you're good. We don't have the technology for that. Just send us the disk. And, of course, they had the technology for it. He sent them some incriminating shit. They found out that uh, the computer he used was at his church. Once again, another religious guy doing this bullshit. But they caught him. And he's doing forever now. But had he not reactivated himself, had he not maintained his, you know, sense of control over himself, over his life, over his wife, whoever, he may never have been caught. And with that, perhaps frustratingly, we still don't really know why Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, and many other names stopped killing. In the HBO series about him and the book that Michelle McNamara wrote, Rest in Peace, uh, both titled I'll Be Gone in the Dark, it's kind of theorized that he might have just gotten too old. This was a guy that when he was young, he was in very good physical condition. He was a good runner. He could climb and fucking trapeze and, you know, evade better than anybody else. Obviously better than anybody pursuing him because he was never caught. And in some of his later crimes, particularly his, you know, his crimes, once he moves down to Southern California, the town of Goleta and Santa Barbara and those areas around there, you start to see some, some fuck-ups that aren't associated with his previous work. You know, he starts doing stuff and things start happening because he's unable to physically impose himself, 
He's unable to perhaps control the situation the way he needs to. People are fighting back. And perhaps, you know, he pulled that Murtaugh, you know, from back in the day and said, I'm too old for this shit. And with that, I want to say thank you to you guys for listening. This is uh, probably not the easiest subject for most people to sit and listen to or talk about or discuss. And there's a lot of people out there, particularly right now, that are very into true crime. I thank you guys for listening, for, you know, giving my shit a chance. But I really thank the people that listened here that perhaps this isn't their cup of tea. And if you're wondering, like, hey, what's up, Connor? Like, you seem to know a lot of shit about serial killers. What kind of shit is that? I'll tell you there's a reason for that. So for the last almost three years, I've been writing a novel. That novel is called The Painted Ladies. And the central character to the novel is a serial killer. And that novel will be available in the coming months. But until then, this is Brain Drain with Connor McCann. I am the one and only, well, not the one and only, there's tons of us out there, but I'm the one and only Connor McCann doing this podcast, and I thank you for listening. Peace.